I know what it's like to work in B2B and wear a lot of hats. One minute you're optimizing your inbound funnel, the next you're working on a demand gen program, all while trying to keep on top of all the opportunities landing in your inbox. That's why I'm a big fan of Chili Piper and their concierge tool. It's built specifically for marketers like you who are strapped for time and under pressure to deliver results. It uses intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route inbound inquiries from your website to the right salesperson in your organization. And this means that you capture more than the 60% of leads that never convert to a meeting because companies just don't react quickly enough. No leaky funnel, more leads, more meetings, more pipeline. What's not to love? Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com forward slash B2B better to learn more. Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping early stage marketing teams do better than boring work. My name is Jason Bradwell and every week I sit down with whip smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build a modern day strategy that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. Today on B2B Bed, I'm very excited to be joined by Grace Baldwin, who is a content strategist at Hyber. How are you doing, Grace? Hey, I'm doing really well. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. Like pretty much all of my um, uh, podcast guests, we met on Twitter and have been talking on Twitter for probably the best part of a year now. So I'm really glad that we finally get an opportunity to talk face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom. Yeah, absolutely. It's very strange, the connections that you can make through Twitter and I don't know. I, 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 that's one of the things I love about the platform. Definitely. I mean, I've made more friends on Twitter probably in, in the last year than I have done in real life over the last five years, which I don't know if that says more about my social skills than, than Twitter's capability to create networks, but I'll take it. You know, I feel similarly, so we can, we can put the onus on Twitter and say it's all, Twitter's amazing. Yeah. So let's, it's let's not do our that. Fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I said that you were a content strategist at Hiber. Tell us a little bit about your role over, over at Hiber and what does the company do? Yeah. Okay. So Hyber is a industrial internet of things company, a space tech company. So what we do is we bring connectivity to the most remote areas of the world. Um, so a big problem that companies, so bigger manufacturing companies. So a great example is like oil and gas companies. They have oil wells in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, the middle of the ocean, middle of the desert, places where, you know, you're not getting the cell phone signal, you're not getting Wi-Fi. Um, and the problem, the problems that we're solving are that you have to go out and ch- check your oil wells, for example, or if you have an, a- a- an asset out there, you have to go out and check it and make sure that it's okay. Um, uh, you have to go and make sh- yeah, you have to go and make sure that it's okay, but that's really expensive to do. It's, ex- it's dangerous. You're often sending people to really, yeah, intense locations, you know, offshore platform in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico is not the safest place to be. Mm. Um, and we're, we create devices and we bring connectivity to these areas so that you can install a device on a truck or on an oil well and measure what's happening out there from the comfort of your couch. Incredible. And I would love to dig more into how that actually happens. Cause I'm a bit of a geek and the idea of, uh, creating mobile wi-fi signal you know in the middle of nowhere um you know i suppose there's some sort of kind of satellite uh component to the business like firing stuff into space you know i would love to geek out on that for a bit but we probably spent half an hour talking about that and and not b2b marketing which is why we're here but it sounds like it's 
it's an enterprise company, right? This isn't a SaaS product, a SaaS platform where people can just plug in their credit card and away they go. It is uh, very much a, a, a an enterprise style business. It is an enterprise style business. And so something that you, is sort of unique that we're doing within the spaces that we are offering, it's an enterprise solution, but we're offering it with a SaaS model. So it is a subscription-based um, model where because, and we're providing the, we're providing all three parts of it. So we're providing the hardware, the software, and the connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and our SaaS subscription model allows us to, to actually make that a reality. Yeah. So it's an interesting mix of SaaS enterprise, but yeah, I mean, we're definitely targeting enterprise companies. Um, that's my background is working in enterprise. So I feel very comfortable, um, you know, talking about content marketing and, 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 uh, social media and community and what have you in that arena. We organized this interview around a tweet that you sent, which was about how you'd built a enterprise content funnel framework that you scaled across all the products within your business, which I'm really interested to learn more about. Um, tell me what, what, what did that entail? Yeah. Okay. So it was a huge project. So basically what we really needed and what we saw, because I mean, within enterprise, right. Sales cycles are always really long. Um, you know, ours can take nine months or so. And what we, we were, we were bringing in MQLs, but then we were delivering them to sales and most of them weren't responding yet because I mean, they, they just hadn't really been warmed up. So we really needed to create a full lead warming and lead nurturing flow. Um, and we had to do that with limited resources. I'm the only content writer. We're a marketing. This is the biggest marketing team actually that I've worked in, but we're a team of five. Um, and so we needed to figure out kind of an efficient way to do that. And so we built a whole framework that I think there's 60 pieces of content within the funnel for one of our products, but it's the framework is something that we have then copied and can apply to the next product, which is what I'm currently doing. So we have it live for one product, but, and are building the the funnel for the next product. Okay. So when we're talking about a a framework, what you mean is that you've got a product within the business and you are building a series of content around that product. I'm guessing that kind of talk to all the different stages of the funnel. Is that that what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. So We divided our funnel into five different stages. So we're using Eugene Schwartz's um, five stages of awareness. So starting with unaware, moving to problem aware, then solution aware, product aware, and then the most aware slash intent phase. And we started our funnel at the problem aware stage. And then the idea is then to provide education through emails and blogs and webinars over a course of three months to move people from problem aware to more aware about the product. Okay. And the content itself, what, what kind of formats did that take? Was it, is it just blog posts, emails, videos? What, what did that look like? So we have a couple, we have a couple different things. So people come into the flow with a, we have some, we have downloadable pieces of content, but then, so we have eBooks and then there's a lot of blogs in it, but then we have a couple of on-demand webinars, which are suit there which are amazing pieces of content to have in there people seem to really really like them um so we're trying to add in some more of those and then as we move further down the funnel we have um case studies and more product specific content um and most of it most of it is in blog post form um but we but we do also have white papers and ebooks and that kind of thing 
And how did you determine how did you determine what content or what to write about? You know, was it based on intuition? Was it based on, you know, conversations you had internally with your sales folk? Was it based on customer research? Like with the, these 60 pieces, how did you map out what it is they were going to be about? So it was a lot, a lot, a lot of research. Um, I think I spent, this project took three-ish months, I would say. And I would think the first half of it was spent purely on researching. So what we did was we completely redid our personas. And we did that through a combination of, I sat in on a lot of sales phone calls. I interviewed the entire sales team. And I also spent a lot of time kind of internet stalking, um, our personas and trying to figure out, okay, what are the things they care about? I went on Reddit for this product, like the, this product category was on Reddit a lot, reading about what are people struggling with in the industry. Um, but yeah, so it was a lot of, a lot of research based and really a lot of conversations with the sales team. And at one, we did a couple of workshops too, that were really, really helpful in trying to realign our personas. And then once we had the personas in place, it was a matter of figuring out, okay, what do they currently believe right now? Like what's holding them back? And then how can we coach them or what sort of content do we need to get them to change their beliefs around our products offering? And that during that research period, did that involve at all any engagement with customers directly? And I, I ask because coming from the enterprise world, one thing that I've struggled with throughout my career is because you're targeting, and it sounds like it could be the same at Hiber, a relatively small niche of customers, right? You know, your total addressable market is 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 finite um, uh, compared to something like you know a SaaS platform, like a productivity SaaS platform, where literally anyone who wants to work more efficiently can be your potential customer. Um, the 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 ability to get in front of those customers is tricky right either you've got a gatekeeper that you need to 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 bypass in the form of either an account manager or salesperson on your side who holds a relationship you know maybe the customers themselves just are senior leaders within their organization who won't have the time to sit down with you know a content strategist and ask you know answer questions to feed into a buyer persona so I appreciate that in the enterprise world, it's it's diff, it's more difficult to get in front of clients, and I'm curious to know how you guys approach that when you were building this framework. Yeah, so that part is also is really hard, uh, and so I haven't done any interviews yet. the I, The idea is that what we have built so far is really the foundation that we can start tweaking and optimizing. And the idea, yeah, I mean, it will ultimately get in front of some customers. But how I really got over that with this round or with the first version of this funnel is. I, I joined sales calls and just listened to what questions people were asking and identified, okay, and tried to, yeah, identify from there what really was going on in the personas. And then also just researching, like looking on LinkedIn and reading people's bios and seeing what they're responsible for and what they care about. Um, but yeah, no, it's, that is, I think that's got to be one of the hardest parts of enterprise SaaS marketing. Um, I think, I think the way that you've approached it is, is, is good. And, and I think, you know, it's drilled into us as marketers all the time that, you know, you've got to talk to your customers, you've got to talk to your customers. And in some cases, that's just not possible, right? Or it's very, very difficult. And to, to make it happen is going to take a, you know, a length of time or something to happen that won't happen immediately. 
which can then cause you as a marketer to fall into a little bit of a state of paralysis because then it's like, well, I can't move forward because I haven't spoken to my customers. And I know as a marketer, that's something I need to do if I'm going to build out really strong buyer personas. No, in, in enterprise particularly, it's okay if you can get secondhand information from your sales team or sitting in on sales calls or, you know, desk research. I think Reddit's a really novel and interesting, you know, mechanism you use to, to kind of build out those buyer personas. There's a lot of information out there that is 100% relevant to building out a content program that doesn't necessarily involve you talking to a customer and better to use that and get started while you continue to work on trying to unlock those kind of customer engagement opportunities, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, the reality is that sometimes you just really can't get in front of people and you've just got to use the resources that you have. And I also used a lot of, like we've run, we've run a couple of webinars and one of the questions that I always am asking the people who are running the webinars, the rest of the team who are running the webinars is to, you know, we have Q&A sessions and then I just download the questions that come in from there, which was another research research resource. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I just, you just have to, I guess, get a bit creative because otherwise, yeah, you fall into the trap of not knowing what people know, not knowing what's going on inside the customer's head and just building a funnel based on assumptions. But there's so much that's available to you if you just kind of dig into it. Yeah. 100%. And one of the things I've found is you know, in my career is there will often be opportunities that you can piggyback on within your organization where, you know, maybe it's like a client survey, for instance, you know, maybe your account management team or, or, or sales team or whatever are proactively reaching out to customers to find out, you know, how from a account management point of view, for instance, you know, are, are we faring, you know, would you score us highly from on our customer success, uh, on our customer success score? And, if you're aware of that as a marketer, you can piggyback on that opportunity and try to, you know, include some of your own questions as part of that outreach. I think sometimes, you know, when you're having to deal with gatekeepers, you know, in the form of your, your account managers who always want to make sure the customer's happy and not overload them with requests, you know, finding those kind of opportunities where requests are already being made that you can jump on top of is also another mechanism to, to, to pull. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And looking at customer success too. And okay, what are people, yeah. What are people, what's happening over there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you almost adopt a bit of, almost a bit of a product marketing role of, okay, you have to be aware of what's going on and then jump onto those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. So you spend the first three months researching the, 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 the content and what content you were going to create to map against the funnel. What did that kind of content creation process look like? I mean, did you kind of sit down and just whack out all 60 pieces in one go? Was it more of a kind of ongoing process while you were distributing content, you were continuing to create content? What did that look like? Yeah. So for the first one, the first funnel that we did um, was really, so we already had some stuff. We had, we had a couple of white papers and eBooks and we built the funnel kind of with these pieces of content that we already had in mind. Um, but yeah, then it was really kind of sitting down and just whacking it out. I had a couple week period of working on this almost full time before right. I went on holiday. Um, <laughs> so it was, but it was definitely intense, but you know, we needed to get it up and we really wanted to get it up so we could start learning from it. Um, which was something, uh, yeah, something that I learned from this experience is that, and what I'm doing for this next funnel is just getting them out by stages. And so trying to get more of the awareness content out first and then, you know, we have a month to produce more content. Um, 
before we really need it because it is a 90 day flow. Um, so this second one, we're rolling it out a little bit more slowly. And what do you mean by a 90 day flow? What, what does that mean? So we, so the whole funnel, it's a 90 day duration. So people enter it and then oh, we, the they have 90, they go through 90 days of emails and um, content distribution. And when you were creating the content, were you thinking about kind of repurposing and can we create something that's evergreen, you know, as a single asset that then can be repurposed across different channels? Was that a component? Yeah, so that's definitely a component and repurposing was a huge theme of this as well, because I mean, we have our core messages and then we are echoing them throughout the rest of the funnel. Um, but yeah, the idea is that we this con- this funnel that I built is is going to be the evergreen kind of funnel. And then moving forward, we'll be able to create further campaigns that lead into it. Um, but yeah, this, this this really is the basis and the foundation for the evergreen funnel. Got it. And in terms of distribution, you mentioned email there. Um, what what were the kind of prime? What have been the primary channels in you getting this content in front of your customers? So yeah, e- email really is the is the primary. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so it's all it's all behind a gate. Um, yeah, so it's all once people opt into the flow, then they're going to be receiving emails for a three month period. And what platform is being used to kind of manage? Because I imagine it's automated, right? What what platforms being used to manage that that process? So we're using Salesforce and Pardot. I don't really Pardo. Pardo, yeah. Nobody really knows the pronunciation of it. Uh, (laughs) It's in like a multicultural or multilingual office here. Uh, So we're using that. And how are you finding the use of that tool? Um, you know, one thing that's quite the overall it's not it's nice um actually my colleague did most of the implementation of it so i don't have too much to say on that but one thing that i do find a bit frustrating about it is that i, I can't really do a lot of ab testing um mm-hmm. and but it is nice that it has this integration with salesforce because we're also using this as a lead scoring um mm. method method so he was able to assign a certain number of points for every email opened um and all of that integrates with Salesforce, which is what our sales team uses. Got it. What has been the kind of result of the creation of this framework? I appreciate it's still early days. And, you know, this is a, a model that you want to roll out across other kind of aspects uh, of the business, other products within the business. But are you seeing any early results that validated this, what seems like a huge investment of time and, and energy? Yeah. So one thing that's pretty cool to see is that, it's interesting to see that it's working again. It's only been live for a couple of weeks. So I really don't have um, very conclusive evidence, but it is some early signs, you know, our open rates are pretty healthy. Um, click-through rates are pretty healthy based on just industry benchmarks. So right now we're building up our own benchmarks for the next quarter. Um, and then we can start tweaking it and improving it. But based on other industry benchmarks, it looks like everything's pretty healthy which is cool, but I think what's more interesting to see is that we had a lot of people who on who were within our Pardo, you know, newsletter list who were fairly unengaged, but now that we're emailing them more consistently, they're engaging with it and learning about what we're doing and the problems that we're solving, um, which is kind of rewarding to see. Yeah, absolutely. And did you kind of also enroll all of those people who are already in your database into this into this workflow, or did you kind of segment the list and say, you know, when this trigger happens, they are then entered into that funnel. I think we, we auto enroll, like, yeah, we auto enrolled some people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah, but again, my, my colleague did more of the implementation on that side of it. Okay, cool. Um, is there anything kind of looking back at the kind of creation of, of this funnel and, and framework that you would have done differently? I definitely, I don't know if I would have done anything differently. I think that this first one was just, was truly just a learning experience, right? And so it moved a little bit slower um, because just learning, learning how to do the whole, put the whole thing together and build it all in Perdot. And um, yeah, thinking differently. I think one thing that I would have done differently is actually pulling more of the team in from the beginning. So what a mistake that I made in the as I was redoing the personas was I kind of did it a bit in a silo. Like I kind of did it myself. And I remember I created these beautiful personas and I was really proud of it. And then I looked at my Google sheet and I was like, nobody else knows that I've made these, you know, cause I was interviewing the sales team one-on-one. I wasn't really doing it really collaboratively. Um, and so then I actually started organizing workshops around everything, which, you know, I'd be part of this experience has shown me the power of collaborative workshops and it made the, it made everybody so much more engaged and also really showed the value of what we're doing um, and why we were investing so much time in it, um, which was pretty cool. So I think that, yeah, what I would have done differently is make it more collaborative from the beginning. Was the intention always to kind of create this framework slash funnel um, across all of the products within your business or was there, you know, a conversation around we should do this once and validate the idea before we then roll it out across, across the rest of our product set. Yeah. So the, we, I mean, we only have two products, so it, mm. and it's not too difficult to create the content around it. So, and they're both very different products. Um, so yeah, I mean, both of the, both of these are definitely, we're in early stages of validating it, but it's also, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work in next, in the next six months, then we'll find something different to do for both of them. But yeah. um, so far it looks like things are going well. The, the reason I asked the question is because when, you know, you talk about kind of collaboration and I think that one of the things we can suffer from as marketers is getting very excited about ideas and, you know, putting a lot of time and energy into planning these ideas. I've spent the best part of my day today creating a deck about what 2022 looks like for, for, for my team. And, and it, I'm, I'm really excited about it, but now I need to show it to someone and get <laughs> them excited about it. And I, 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 I asked that question as to understand whether as part of that kind of collaboration effort that you recognized was something that needed to happen, you know, whether that helped win some people over, you know, that this was a valuable use of your time and the marketing team's collective time. Yeah, definitely. I think that, cause I think that especially like our sales team, they sort of knew that we were doing something, but didn't really fully understand, but by pulling them in and showing them, okay, here's the theoretical knowledge behind what we're doing. I think it really got the team way more excited. And it also just helps distribute the knowledge a bit more, which is something that I'm a huge proponent of um, in terms of documentation and distribu- distribution of knowledge. Mm. Um, and, but yeah, I think it, it really did get the team actually invested in and excited about the project. And I guess then that helps when you do start seeing results come through and, you know, you mentioned that you've got a lead scoring component attached to this project that is hooked up with Salesforce. You know, the fact that you've done this, 
this work in advance where you've involved your sales team and they understand the project, they understand the rationale behind the project. When you do start seeing these results coming in and leads are coming into the database, you know, they're probably going to be more uh, understanding of, of where those leads have come from, the process that they went through to become leads and thus more uh, eager to kind of jump on top of them and, and try and chase them through. Yeah, well, and the goal, the hope with this is just that the leads that they get are better qualified too. So it creates a, then a better, you know, because they've gone through this whole process, they aren't, we're also filtering out people that are not, that are maybe show interest in the company, but aren't customers. So like job seekers is a good example. Um, so we're trying to, we're filtering out the people, the people that we're trying to deliver them the best, the highest quality leads that we possibly can and filter out the ones where they shouldn't be investing their time, which is something that I'm, I'm sure that they'll appreciate. And once we start seeing what comes out of the funnel in a couple of months, I'm very curious to see what the reaction is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's such an important part of our job and something I've you know come to realize over the last few years where it's it's very easy for us as marketers to go out there and, and spend money and time and generate a big long spreadsheet full of names. But if those names, 95%, 95% of them are just irrelevant or not in a position to buy your product or service, you know, at best, you are just wasting your time and your colleagues' time in sales in sourcing and chasing down those leads. At worst, you're really kind of damaging your credibility as a function within the business that can do more than just make decks look pretty, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you're spending all of your time sending over dead leads to to your salespeople and enough of them then complain to the chief revenue officer, chief executive officer, whoever, that marketing aren't really adding any value here, that can have a serious knock-on effect to your budget the following year um, and ability to try out new creative ideas. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's, I think it's, if we're able to see then more directly, more directly how inbound affects revenue. Um, and hope, yeah, hopefully, I mean, for me, I think that it, the conversion rate from SQL to SAL is, I, 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 it should increase. And I think that that's one of the true signs of how good your marketing is, is how quality the leads are. For a marketer listening to this uh, podcast and wanting to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give to them? So something that I'm a really big believer of in marketing and that I've learned throughout the course of my career is that marketing is not about your business. It's about the prospect. Um, and I, I know that this, like, this is like marketing 101, but the way that I, it didn't really click for me until I started thinking about marketing is creating a story from your prospect's perspective. And so that's why I really, you know, the traditional funnels of awareness, consideration, and intent, or, um, you know, attract, convert, attract, engage, convert, like these three-step funnels, I really struggle with them because they're pretty business focused and not necessarily customer focused. And that's why, you know, with this funnel, we chose to go with the five stages of awareness, because I think that it's a really good reminder and a good way to keep yourself in your prospect's shoes and understanding, okay, what is the problem that they're experiencing? What solution are they looking for? What do they know about your product? So I think that the five stages of awareness, I've found it to be a better way to build funnels than traditional three-step funnel models. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, one hundred percent. I'm curious to 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 kind of get your sense on, and it might be too early to really say this, but you know, one thing one thing I've struggled with a little bit is 
I can create any funnel I want, but when there is a handover process where a lead goes from marketing to sales, you know, I want to know what happens at that point, right? Like I want to know what then impact the, 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 the is being experienced by that customer when they move into that kind of sales function and then use those insights to hone my marketing plan and my marketing strategy. But sometimes it can be difficult to get those insights um, and to get that understanding of where, you know, perhaps someone's raced through that kind of awareness funnel and then they've been handed over to sales for some reason they've dropped. I don't know if, if you've got any kind of thoughts around that or if that is factored into the planning around this funnel, you know, how do you, how do you not lose visibility or sight of what happens once that handover occurs between marketing and sales? Yeah. And that's something, I mean, I, I think it ultimately comes down to just creating really a, relation, a good relationship with sales. So every three weeks we have a meeting, a conversion focus meeting um, where we discuss, okay, what's going on? Like what's changed on both sides of the table um, that's affecting the numbers. And we compare numbers based on the previous quarter. And I think that I find that meeting to be a really great way to connect with sales, see what's going on, see what's coming, what they're experiencing and also um, get feedback on why they're disqualifying people. Um, but yeah, I, th I think ultimately it really comes down to, yeah, building that relationship with them and also trying to get them to tell you what, what, what's going on and why they're dropping. Yeah. It sounds really simple, but I think it's probably missed by a lot of people, you know, yeah. a simple phone call or, or zoom meeting. You don't want to do it too often because then people start getting annoyed. But I think once every three weeks, once every month makes a lot of sense where you get in your sales leaders across the organization, you make a point of showcasing what's happened from a marketing side, you know, the insights that you've been able to gather on your collective efforts and then setting a really strong agenda that makes clear that you're expecting the same back from them on that call because too, you know, I've very often sat on a phone sales marketing syncs where it's been marketing sharing a lot of information because we've been the one putting in the putting the, the marker in the diary and not really getting that much back. And maybe that's down to, you know, just poor planning in advance and the setting of expectations. But I think calls are the right way to go in terms of getting those insights, uh, particularly in enterprise organizations where there's perhaps not so much quantitative data you can pull out of um, your CRM. And just setting clear expectations that this is a two-way street. You know, we will yeah. share with you X, Y, and Z, and we expect back, you know, A, B, and C. Yeah, and we so we had that we had our conversion meeting today, and the sales actually began. They didn't they they started the meeting, so that it was. And I don't know if that was I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just it just how it happened. But I mean, they offer up a, and we have we have a great sales team, and that they offer up a ton of information about what they're doing, and there's a lot of great communication on that front. That's great. So yeah. What P uh, what, if you could fix one element of B2B marketing, what would it be? Yeah. So I think, I think that one element, and again, this is my first, I've worked in startups my entire career. Um, and like, I love the world of startups and I, I understand that there's a need to kind of get things up and running, but I also, um, I think that the special sauce in B2B comes when you slow down and simmer and get to know your customers really well and do that proper research. Um, and it really does show in your ability to connect with your customers. So I think that that's something that I would, I think, yeah, slowing down and not necessarily trying to push forward in every possible way. Um, 
I think that that's something that I would fix. I don't mm. know if I would, if it's broken necessarily, but it's something that I would like to see more of. You know, I could certainly relate to that. I consider myself a little bit of a magpie in that I will see a shiny new object in the marketing world and I'll want to suddenly just start doing that thing. I desperately try to make a case of why TikTok would be a suitable channel for us in an in this big enterprise B2B technology company. Um, uh, because, you know, you can't argue with the engagement, but you've got to think about actually who is engaging on that platform and are you in a position to really tap into the, the kind of zeitgeist that exists within that platform, which we, which we weren't. Um, but yeah, I think doing few things well, much like in life is, is better than doing a lot of things kind of meh, you know what I yeah, mean? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be everywhere at once. Like it's better to know which channel your audience is on and double down on it and yeah, really make sure you're, it's better than, you know, AB test your messaging rather than trying to I don't know, build up a Snapchat presence if your audience isn't on Snapchat or doesn't have access to it. Especially in a startup environment, right? Yeah. You know, you can feel so such immense pressure when you look at companies like Salesforce who, you know, have got a podcast, they're doing kind of paid, paid marketing, they're doing search really well, uh, they pump out a lot of content, they've got the Dreamforce event, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and say, well, you know, that's a big, that's a B2B company, we're a B2B company, we need to be doing all of those things as well. But then you look that Salesforce has got something like a $9 billion sales and marketing budget, right? Yeah. As a startup, it is just not feasible to expect to be everywhere at once and be talking to everyone at once. And I know it sounds a little bit cliche at this point, but niching down on the channel and the message that resonates the most is is the way forward. Yeah, exactly. And I think also starting with the point of sale and starting with the messages that are closest to your point of conversion and then moving outwards rather than trying to sort of start with SEO, for example, and doing top level SEO if you're not um, converting. Yeah. So building the funnel and from your point of sale backwards rather than trying to fix it as you go to mm. closer to the point of sale. Yeah. Looking forward five years from now, you know, what do you think will be the biggest change in how B2B companies market themselves? So I think something that's already happening, and I think we've discussed this on Twitter actually, but I truly, I think that branding, especially in the enterprise space is going to become so much more, so much more important, um, no matter your industry. And that's one of the reasons I joined Hyber is because we truly have a very unique brand within our space. Um, and our, yeah, I just think that it's going to be the thing that sets people apart because buyers are getting used to brands and we're already seeing this sort of in like the productivity software, for example, and like these lower, not, yeah, lower price point, uh, wider audience uh, software. But yeah, I think that, I just think that branding is going to become more, significantly more important. Especially with products that are commoditizable, right? You know, products that, you know, I, you know, Working, working in enterprise B2B tech, um, I walk through, you know, I used to walk through trade show uh, halls and, and look at all the booths and think, you know, everyone's just blue and gray. Like it's it's the same thing, right? Yeah. And they're all using the same language as one another. You know, we deliver solutions for customers anywhere, anytime, any place. As a buyer, you know, where you're just kind of looking around the floor and you're just trying to figure out where you're going to go next before you get your afternoon coffee, if everything looks the same, you, you know, you're just going to probably go to the one that's closest to you. But yeah. if you see a splash of color 
or if you see a word that's used that is outside of the ordinary on on a stand in that split second, that can be enough to pull your attention and at least you know walk a couple of steps further and dig in a bit deeper, which then captures that that moment. Um, so yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do think in enterprise the scale of time it will take for most companies to realize that branding is important is probably longer than you know traditional lower tier, lower price point tier SaaS, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, but inevitably it will, I, I believe most will fall, will fall for it. Yeah. And I, th- and I think we're starting to see it happening. I, th- I think Klarna is a good example. I mean, they do have a B2C, B2C arm of their business, but even their B2B stuff, I mean, they have these commercials with Snoop Dogg and then all the, it's all pink and stuff. And I, I don't know, I think that, I think I imagine that there's going to be more of that. Yeah, it's 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 just another way to differentiate and stand out in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned Snoop Dogg. There's a brand I follow called Trainual, and they do um, kind of playbook software for for businesses. So if you have like a process that you want to, you know, um, communicate at scale, you can create the playbook within the platform, and then you know people can access that. And they just finished a mu- they just did a music video with Montel, like the '90s hip hop artist um and it you know they are just a b2b essentially workplace productivity uh piece of software but they're out there and they're you know shooting these kind of hip-hop videos with with montel they hired a bunch of the former cast of the office um (laughs) and did kind of a short creative spot with them and you know you could look at that and say what business does a productivity office productivity software have in doing that kind of thing you know, if I was ever in the market for an office productivity piece of software, they're who I'm going to at least yeah. have a conversation, right? Because I remember them. And I think that's what this is all about. It's about memorability. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, and I just think that there's space to be creative and have some fun. I think that B2B for the lot, you know, has traditionally been, you know, very heavy, very professional. And I, I just, I think that that's changing and because people want yeah, our people need businesses know that they need to be remembered now. Um, you know, in the war for attention from the rest of the the rest of the internet, you've got to stand out. Definitely. Yeah. Great, Grace. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I appreciate you sharing so much with us. Um, who should I interview next on B two B Better? Yeah, so I think Diane Wiredu. I told you, uh, Annie Bacher is another one who would probably be wonderful to have on the podcast, and both of them are on Twitter. Great. Well, I'll definitely be hitting up for some introductions to them. And for anyone who wants to follow you or learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, find me on Twitter. I'm Hey Grace Baldwin. Perfect. I'll drop the, uh, the the URL for your Twitter profile in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Grace, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful end of my Wednesday. If you're in demand gen, a growth hacker, or a B2B marketer, you need to know about Chili Piper. Its concierge tool allows you to eliminate the waiting period between a prospect filling out a form on your website and getting a meeting with someone in your business. Companies like Twilio, Spotify, and Gong all use Chili Piper to double their inbound conversion rates. And the best thing is that marketers using Chili Piper are better equipped to accurately attribute channel spend thanks to a no-fuss, two-way sync between the platform and their CRM. You know I'm a believer in a frictionless customer journey, and this is the tool that can make it happen. Turn meetings into leads instantly with Chili Piper. Head over to chilipiper.com forward slash B2B better to learn more.
And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Chili Piper.